Welcome to the Mindset for Runners podcast, helping you to access and unlock your true potential as an athlete. Hey, it's Rob, and welcome to part two of my conversation with Brett Canellan. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that first because we're about halfway through the conversation right now. Let's get straight back into it. Please enjoy part two of my interview with Brett Canellan. The way you piece it together, your self-awareness through that moment and your reflection of what's working and how you bring it in is incredible. So in the past, surfing, I know you said there's a community, but it is more solitary. You do it with a couple of mates, right? So all of a sudden you've got social support that you're using with coffees and and golf and you're getting to know people on a deeper level. and, And is there... Was there also, did golf give you something? You said you became obsessed about it. When you went surfing from 11, or sorry, to 19 to 22, you put everything into it with a plan B. Mm. Did golf give you that focus? Did you like look at how you improve or was it just a place to, to go to get something similar to surfing? The thing I love about golf is that it is, you, it, it's one of those sports where you really do get out of it what you put into it. Um, like the, the actual, I, I enjoy practicing more than I do playing an actual round. Yeah, um, right. Like I, I had a bit of time off in the last couple of years and I'm only just getting back into it now, but not getting back into it to play rounds. Like I've just been going down and hitting, hitting balls in the practice mm. range. And the reason I loved golf so much and still love it so much is because if you go down there and you work on your swing, like the, those changes can show up the next day in how you play. And the thing that, like the approach that a lot of people take to golf, because it is very social and everyone plays it socially, is they'll just play once a week, once a once a month maybe, and you, you're not going to improve that way. <laughs> that way. Whereas I, I really enjoyed, like I, I obviously had the time through the recovery to to practice and have something else to dedicate myself towards, but I really enjoyed the ability to actually work on something so specific like that. And I guess there is the similarity to surfing there. But I also like it because it's so different. When it comes to surfing, there is an unlimited number of ways that you can surf a wave. There's no correct way of doing it either. It's really very subjective in how you surf, like style and and what you do is different from person to person, which is what makes that sport so beautiful. But what I enjoy about golf is there's a specific way to swing. (laughs) And if you're a millimeter off, you're having a bad time. So I think it was... A similar similar approach, but with a, a completely different function in mind, which which is what excited me about golf, and and I think why when I I kind of look back at getting back into surfing afterwards, it's given me a different appreciation for for what that sport is, um, because you start to see that there are different ways about um, I suppose achieving different things. Fascinating, mate. Love it. So you you're playing golf how many times during this recovery like every day almost yeah almost every day yeah almost every day it was it was something that was it was great because it was it became more than just this thing where I was like okay I'm only gonna do it when I'm feeling bad like I ended up just doing it as as part of just like my my life in a way and I I, I know a lot of people that have gotten into golf and it does have something quite obsessive about it where um, I think there's just something really rewarding about you can, the worst golfers still, can still hit one good shot per yeah, round yeah. which will make you feel and, awesome. And I remember it, yeah. <laughs> so there's that, there's, 
And this is probably where it does relate to, to surfing a little bit. Like you can show up every single day, the waves might be average, but that one day you show up and the waves are good and you get that good wave, it's all worth it. Yeah. It's probably the same same with golf, which is why I found it so, so encapsulating. But for me, it was just something that I probably credit because I was doing it so much. Um, I probably credit that with the reason why I was able to walk without a limp um, for like in, in a really short amount of time because I was playing every day. I was walking around the course. When I could start walking around, I I said I don't want to get the cart. I just want to like I may as well use it. Like <laughs> I've gained this enormous goal that I wanted to right from the start, and I'm grateful for that. And I want to use. I'm I'm one of those people that will always take the stairs over the escalator. <laughs> so it's it. it's um it's something that is like the sport of golf has given me a lot. In, in that as well so, so it, it had a function as well yeah. as as well as just the the enjoyment we skipped over a step when did you realize that the lat muscle was working and you were and can you take us to that moment yeah. and then when you actually hit your goal of walking again yeah it's the lat muscle so i was able to walk before the lat muscle worked um right. essentially so the the way it works with the the lat muscle being able to function is they connect a nerve which they essentially connect the best way to describe it is like a bit of conduit for for some electrical wires although the electrical wires haven't grown through it the pathways there um, okay. those the nerve actually grows at like a millimeter a day so over 15 centimeters it's going to take quite a long time so I, it didn't take um, i didn't find out about the the lat muscle actually working until over a year after a year so it just takes that long for it to work but there there was enough of the other muscles there that we worked on and we rehabbed where they started to be able to do enough to control the knee so i could start walking and, and start sure. moving forward and to be honest it, it happened really quick the ability to start walking because i was i was on crutches when i left hospital and that meant that i was upright and i was weight bearing um I went through a series of different braces that I was wearing. So from like a straight leg brace to this one that I had, which allowed me to bend my knee to a like certain amount of degrees. And it was when I was wearing that, that I could start weight bearing and, and walking around, although that was really supporting my legs. So it was probably, it was probably three months before I, I could get rid of that and I could walk on it un, unaided. Um, without the need for crutches, without the need to, to hold on to anything. And, and from that point, it started progressing pretty quickly because I didn't know it, but Scott had been programming my body from those early days to, to not only just walk, but to run. So I was doing um, like specific exercises, not actually running in physio, but like the ones on the wall um, mm. where runners and sprinters will actually use that to to work out how to to run properly so I, I was doing these exercises which i just thought were like activation exercises for the glutes and stuff like that but after about four months we were doing like sprinting exercises and learning how to do all these sorts of things here well actually it was probably a little bit longer than four months because it wasn't until after i was i was surfing again because it was still quite tender but things progressed like in, mm. in that direction, which I, I thought was pretty amazing. So it's, it's incredible to me that Scott had this vision of not only just like 
walking or being back in the water but running and becoming an athlete again i guess that goes to show again his belief in his own message that he was going to aim as high as he can and there's no point training someone to walk if you need them to run like you you can train them to run and if they fall short then they're still achieving this massive goal oh the story just gets so <laughs> much better and better so we're we've been golfing failing in the gym and yep. then getting back and all the while learning more about yourself and what makes you tick and and how you deal with it and then when was the decision to try surfing for the first time since the attack so the actual time period is five months after the attack um it took me by surprise <laughs> i i was physically feeling good but i didn't think i was ready to surf again because i my idea of surfing again was surfing the way i did before yeah so i thought that unless i was in the same physical state as i was pre-attack i wouldn't be able to surf again so for me i still thought we were a little while off and i was in physio one day and it was it was kind of getting to the point in the recovery where the progress starts to slow down a little bit um the increments of improvement get smaller and smaller and you're working two three times as hard to to try and get there where it was starting to get a little bit stagnant and i think scott knew that we were at the point where we needed to kind of do something to to push us both forward and i was in physio one day and he was like okay let's um i just want to experiment with something he's like can you see if you can stand up as if you were surfing and i was just laying on the ground i was like yeah i'll try and did it the first time did a pretty average job <laughs> just because i hadn't done it for so yeah. long and my hips were tight and everything and he was like well maybe try again i did it again did it a little bit better and he's like maybe just see if you can go stand up on a long board see if you can go for a surf and i was like are you serious like because <laughs> i hadn't considered that as being the option i wasn't like oh i'll get back in on a long board and it'll progress from there but he's like yeah i'm serious like just go just get in the water. This is just a step like to, to where we want to go, but this is this is going to be you getting back in the water. And um, there's, I guess this is the natural point that a lot of people would go back to the shark attack and be like, are you not scared of going back in the water because of sharks? And for me, I didn't really have time to consider that fear. Part of me had already kind of reconciled with, with what, my relationship with sharks was and i'd done that in the early days of hospital um but the other part was like i called nick after scott had said that and i was like hey scott just said i can go for a surf and nick was just excited he was like i'll grab i'll grab a long board i'll come pick you up we'll go for a surf and then he just hung up <laughs> so i didn't even have time to like to yeah. think about whatever that fear meant for me it was more I kind of reverted back almost to this this fear of not wanting to fail because this felt like a pretty momentous thing. I was like, well, what if I go out there and I, I can't stand up? And that that made me pause for a second and be like, well, does it actually matter? <laughs> and it kind of, again, you, you learn from these things that you learn along the way. And I'm like, well, it's the same as everything else that I've been trying. If I can't stand up today, that doesn't mean I can't try again tomorrow. But I hadn't been in the ocean since the attack. Like I hadn't even been for a swim. So I was like, if the worst case scenario, I can't stand up, I at least get to go and be in the ocean and paddle on a surfboard. And that's enough of a step in itself. Uh, just to take you back, you said you reconciled your relationship with sharks starting in the ho hospital. Yeah. What, what did you reconcile to? So there's a funny thing that happens with 
with uh, when you're when you're a tech wire shark um, that not many people can relate to. <laughs> um, there's a lot of media interest. There's a lot of interest from different parties who are looking to get their own thing out of your experience. And one of those is the um, and this is in in the film as well. But the Department of Primary Industries who basically document and look after all the shark mitigation strategies and they wanted to figure out what type of shark it was to see what sort of actions they take in regards to culling. And I, <clears throat> someone had told me that they were looking to figure out if it was um, anything other than a great white because that's what they had identified it as based on the teeth marks that were left in my leg. And I remember when I heard when they were talking about culling, I was like, well, that doesn't really sit right with me. It didn't feel right for me to to say that I deserve to get revenge on this creature that was just doing what it would do. Like as a surfer, I knew the, the risks of going in the ocean. I took on that responsibility. And for me, recon reconciling that was saying, I don't, I don't care about what type of shark it was, um, despite the fact that it wasn't a great white. Um, it didn't make a difference to me. And that was kind of the, the embodiment of the quote I said before is that it's not about what happens to you, it's about how you respond. And not to say dismiss what you've been through, but if you can reason with it and say it's happened, it's, it's been done, it's in the past, um, what can I do from now? That became the more important thing for me rather than dwelling on the attack itself. But there is a certain comfortability that you have to have with sharks because you you get to talk about it a lot like it's a, it's an interesting topic yeah. that people are always interested by and there's always people who are going to have questions so you have to be okay with with talking about the story regardless of if you are that way inclined or not because people are always going to know like they're always going to want to know um and that's something that i became pretty okay with early on because i knew the importance of of talking and speaking about my experience is actually something i learned from um a guy who runs what's called the Bite Club, which is a support group for people who've been attacked by sharks. Right. <laughs> and which which sounds hilarious, but mm -hmm. he, he actually came and visited me while I was in hospital. And I was laying there in the hospital bed. This was only a couple of days after the attack. Um, and he started telling this story of a shark attack. And I was like shocked. Because <laughs> yeah. like, everything was so fresh to me. And he's vividly telling me this other experience of a shark attack and there's parallels to mine. And... And he gets to the end of the story and I'm just like wide-eyed the whole time. And he's like, he's like, do you know why I've told you that? And I was like, I don't know. Were you just trying to scare me? <laughs> like, what, what were you trying to do here? And he said, look, people are always going to be interested through my experience. People doesn't matter who you are, how far away from, like people will always know you as the guy that got attacked by a shark. You'll always get questions. You've got to be okay talking about it. And I think that was a big step in, in just being okay with, with that. But part of reconciling my relationship with sharks was understanding them. Mm. Um, it's all well and good to look at it through a human's perspective, but until you see things through a shark's perspective, um, I don't think you will really understand much about the situation. So for me, I wanted to educate myself a lot on um, what sharks actually are, what they do, how amazing they are as creatures, as I mentioned earlier, but maybe some of the conditions that led to me being bitten that afternoon. Um, whether it be like the water quality, water temperature, what food was in the area, time of day, all these sorts of things here. Because I think the ability to go back in the water and to be okay with taking that risk on again, it's not necessarily the, 
the thing that everyone always says is like, oh, I bet you think you won't get attacked sh twice now. Like, and the odds are significantly against getting attacked twice. But for me, the, the greater way of dealing with that is to just educate yourself so you can make an informed decision every time you go in the ocean and you can be okay with that. Because you're, you're never going to walk into an ocean that has no sharks in it. Um, well, I mean, there is plenty of, plenty of shark culling and, and fishing that goes on, but there's still a lot of sharks. Um, I'd like there to be a lot of sharks in the ocean. It's, it's great for, for the ocean, the ecosystem, but that, that is a risk that you'll always have to take on. Um, I always say to people, like, I'll entertain the, the fear if I ever see a shark walking down the main street of Kayama. But, <laughs> but for me, as, as long as you're going in the ocean, you can never be surprised when you see a shark there. Was that, so that, the, that was your work that you did yourself? Did you do exposure therapy or anything like that? No, it was more just the, the education, education on the facts. Yep. Yeah, the, the exposure therapy is something that that was a little bit later on like okay. I, I became mentally okay with it but yeah. the ability to go to be face to face with a shark to swim with sharks that was the next step there which I guess would probably be something like exposure therapy although people would say exposure therapy would probably start a lot sooner than that with just like looking with at a photo, photo of a shark, shark. <laughs> yeah that's right wow um, but there's all all different levels in, in being comfortable with, with sharks as well um, but yeah, for me, it was mainly just educating myself on on the creature itself and trying to understand them and not only what they do, but their role in the ecosystem and, and all these other things that you can you can learn and you can appreciate the creature for what it is rather than what it did to you. Oh, man, <laughs> it's so incredible to hear you separate it. One of the things that strikes me about you, Brett, is how much you own the story and you said that that guy in the hospital I now understand mm. he he kind of guided you to that but when I've heard you tell the story you, you can go into the depth you can tell it for other people's um, learnings and perspective I, a lot of people I'm sure you can relate would not want to talk about it would yeah. want to put it in the past but I, I just I love and this is part of where I'm at in my life too is owning my story and you've been able to to model that for me and I, I know we're jumping around a bit but is that have did that guy help you realize that you're going to help more people through owning it or something he he else? was the first one that got me to realize that i would have to be okay with it myself um gotcha. because you you can't you can't effectively share that story with other people and provide the perspective that you need to if you're not okay with it yourself or you haven't understood it so he was kind of the catalyst to get me to look at the attack as being, yes, it is, it is something that's happened. Um, people are going to ask about it. You're going to have to be able to recount it. But what can you do to be able to do that properly? I would say the thing that, mm. that has got me to, um, as you said, like own the story is for me, it comes down to, to purpose. Like I, my, my purpose that I've developed on the back of this experience is to use the story to help other people. And there's a number of ways you can help other people, but the the way that actually happened was through the first time I actually spoke in front of a group of people. So the first time I shared it to a group of people, like I'd talked to, you know, friends and family and told them about the experience. But the first time I publicly did it was at a school. Um, one of my friends is a school teacher and for Are You Okay Day that year, so September, he 
so this was four months after the attack, so you'll know I'm not in the water yet. Yeah. Um, he said, hey man, are you okay? Days coming up, would you be okay coming in to do a, a talk with the kids? And I am not someone who, I mean, I, it's different for me to say now, but I'm not someone that typically, especially at that time, would put my hand up to speak in front of a group of people. <laughs> um, I still think that I'm quite a, a socially awkward person that doesn't necessarily feel comfortable standing in front of a group of people. And it was even less so back then. So I was very, very hesitant. But at the same time, after everything I'd been through and everything I'd learned about myself and my own mental health, I knew the importance of Are You OK Day. So I agreed to do it and it was a massive step out of my own comfort zone and I had no idea what I was doing and there was no resolution yet because I hadn't been back in the water. Yeah. It was literally I just walked through the story and up to where I was at that point. And I spoke for maybe 45 minutes and I had 45 minutes of questions and afterwards the teachers came up and they're like, these kids, we've never seen them st sit still for five minutes. Right. And I just remember the, the impact of that and knowing that this story that I have has the ability to do that kind of developed the, that, that ethos of being like, I want to use the story to help other people. And that is what has helped me, you know, own the story a lot more and, and know that it's part of it's for me because it's great to talk about and it's, it's good to, to do all these things for myself. But if I can help one other person through, through sharing the story, then it's all worth it. And I, I have, one specific instance where I'm like, this is what it's all about. So uh, Attacking Life, the film came out in on the 9th of March this year. So two days after that, so on the 11th, I got a message from someone on Facebook, um, this lady who I had no mutual friends with, I had no connection to, and she said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, uh, I've watched the film three times already. Three in times. two days. Yeah. And she goes, I had a stroke three years ago and I just want to let you know I booked in my first physio session to try and walk again and I was like I was like that that's what it's all about wow like that that for me yeah. is why I do everything that I do and yeah it's great to have the intentions of wanting to help thousands of people but for me just having that impact on one person it's totally worth it that's an incredible story and, and that is that's why I say that the shot the attack has given me more than than what it's taken away because it's given me the opportunity to do that like I don't think I would have been able to change someone's life in that way before the attack with you know certainly not through professional surfing maybe through like when I was working in the surf shop you could sell someone a, a surfboard that would make their day but you're not going to change their life in the in attacking life your mum says towards the end uh, speaking freely here, she says that before the attack you were lost or didn't have much purpose and direction. Um, is she right? I think that purpose and direction was just channeled into the surfing side of things, which maybe from a, a mother's point of view, you look at that and probably something that would be slightly more realistic as far as a career choice goes. Um, but I think she's... She's right. Like I, I didn't have much of a grasp on what I could potentially get out of life. Um, and a good way to describe that is I, <clears throat> before the attack, I would never, ever, ever go on holidays anywhere where I wouldn't be able to surf. Right. <laughs> and the first place I went after the attack was actually that November 
November or December, I think November, to France to see my sister get married. And I didn't once think about surfing. I didn't once think about the fact that I wasn't around the ocean. And it was at that time the best trip I'd been on. And I was like, to think of how much of the world I would have missed out on if I just confined myself to the coastline. And that is where I look at the experiences opening my eyes a lot more to, to what the world has to offer, not just in traveling, but there's a lot of other things that I have realized lie beyond the sport of surfing for me. That is, that is just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go from here to, you, you mentioned the purpose that you are still refining as you go. How much, I have to go back to the beach where you're lying there asking yourself, is this it? <laughs> and you have that, feeling that instinct that it's not one of my favorite spiritual teachers richard raw father richard raw talks about the five truths of i think he calls it masculinity but the safer people one of them is basically it's like you're not important um yeah you know you're going to die yeah and in that that's that fifth truth you are going to die he's trying to evoke urgency in people um and to wake up, as you said, to what you could be missing out on and to take life with gratitude. Does that, does that play a role? Did you get some shot of urgency and gratitude that I haven't got yet or people listening maybe haven't got or will never get? Definitely. Um, another good quote that I absolutely adore um, is that we all have two lives and our second begins when we realize we have only one life. So wow. that is something we can either learn through experience. We could learn it through hearing someone else's experience. I think there's a lot of different ways that we can get it. I definitely learn it in probably the most upfront, brutal sort of way that you can. But it is, it's so true because I think everyone will have that moment in life where you realize that you kind of only get one shot at this and um, you will get to the end of it and you will be proud of what you've been able to do or you'll maybe think that you've left a little bit on the table. And I think, every, and again, that kind of goes back to what you said before. At the end of the day, we're all going to die and we're all going to have to answer those questions of like, are we happy with the existence that we've had on this earth? And, and I think the ability to, to recognize that when it comes to purpose, when it comes to doing what we want to do in life, there's, it can be scary to kind of chase that from time to time and to to give up some sort of comfortable situation that you may be in to, to chase something that might be uncomfortable but more fulfilling. But that's where I come back to that, that word of pride, like what is going to bring you more pride in the end? And I think it's a question that people will probably answer differently, but at the end of the day, like we, we do really only get one shot at this. It's something that I, for as, as basic as that, that is the like how short life is and it's like the most basic takeaway you can have from mine i'm surprised that more people aren't shouting that from the rooftops right yeah because even i get i need the reminders from time to time like you kind of get stuck into some sort of rhythm or or some sort of um just like the it might be a bit of a rut that you're stuck in that you can't really work your way through and sometimes you do need those reminders you're like okay i need some sort of motivation to keep moving forward to keep achieving things to to keep doing the things that i want and I, it's natural but i think as humans we kind of like that we like to be comfortable and sometimes the most progress we can make is by pushing ourselves out of that a little bit more well i think i needed this today as well <laughs> so looking at 
where you've taken this, you've gone from working in the surf shop and surfing being your life to now an uncertain future where, you, where you're speaking and you're, you've taken the time to come here today. Um, you've, your work is, is like the path is not clear. Is that fair to say? Or do you have a clear path and goals for your work now? Yeah, I, I do. Um, this, I, I love the speaking stuff as, mm. as hard as it is to, to sometimes get up on stage and, and overcome those nerves. I, I do love that. That is the most direct way that I can make an impact on a group of people is by sharing the story um, specifically to them and then talking to those people afterwards. And like that, that for me brings me so much joy and happiness that it's, it's very, very fulfilling. Um, and that there's, this is where it gets confusing because I would love to be able to do that for the rest of my life. But I don't know how long I can effectively do that before I become like a, an old dude who's telling a story about a shark attack that happened when he was 22, right? So there's, I've, I will do that for as long as people will be interested. Um, I will always be happy to share the story because I always know there's going to be the impact. But there's the other side of things that I've learned so much from my experiences around the fact that stories are everywhere. There's so many amazing stories out there. There's so many unique stories out there. And just because mine is one that is unique in the way of a shark attack that engages people doesn't mean that you couldn't learn more from someone else who's had a different experience. And I know the power of sharing my story and the impact that that could have. And the film for me is kind of the start of sharing a line of different stories. I'd love to be able to do that for a number of different people to give them a platform to share their own lessons, their own learnings, and their own perspectives, because that, that for me is the best way to give back. Oh, so this is brilliant. So here we come to another aspect of you that we haven't spoken about. You excel at surfing. I'm gonna use the word excel. Then you, you, you go through these ups and downs in your recovery and you come out and you excel at golf. And now you and, I'm sorry, your, your, your filmmaker. Sam. Make this amazing film that's one of the best things I've ever seen. And, and it takes you how long to make that? Three years. Three roughly. years, yeah. And, and it's brilliant. And you and Sam made it. And now you want to do more of that as well as speaking and working with people. Yeah. That's the plan. That's the plan. <laughs> it's really good to hear that because I didn't know that was, that was a part of it. Yeah. Okay. So there's, so on, there's more things I want to go. I want to go back to Jaroa. We haven't... <laughs> you, you and Nick are in the water. Yeah. And then the moment happens that you, that symbolizes your recovery. Can you, what, what, what was that like? Yeah, the, that first wave, it's, it's a significant moment. Obviously it is, like you said, the symbol for, for the recovery and I'd never really thought about it like that, but it, it, it really is. It's um, that, that first wave, I didn't really have too many expectations on how it was going to go because I've just told myself, like if I get to my feet, great, if not, Again, like we said earlier, I've been able to get in the water. I've been able to paddle around. That's, that's nice in itself. Um, but we were sitting out there. We were just kind of, we were just taking it all in until this wave kind of popped up. And like, it, it, was, it was funny. Like, it's not like it was a perfect day with great conditions. It's a little bit overcast. There was um, not many people on the beach. It's, you know, like the water's a little bit cold. 
and it was kind of just us. So it was it was nice to just be me and Nick, who I've spent so much time surfing with over the years, and to be able to share that with him. So this wave pops up, and Nick's like, "All right, let's go," and paddled into it, and didn't really have to think too much about getting to my feet. It was it kind of just happened, and this like it's it's not like the surfing was amazing like I just stood up and went across on the wave but there was something very amazing about just getting to the end of that wave and being like I, I did it and that was <clears throat> symbolic of overcoming one part of of the journey I think like I said that's the symbol for for the recovery but like I get asked by people all the time like how long did the recovery take and I'm like well using the word recovery is very broad it could it could mean anywhere from getting back in the water and having that surf to getting back to the surfer that I was before. Like the the scale's immense, but just the ability to get back in the water, it did feel like a very pivotal moment. And it told me that I could do it. Wow. And that for me was like, okay, from there, where do you go? Like even from that point, I was like, I had that first wave, first surf kind of debrief, was really proud of that. But then I was like, okay, when can I have my next surf? And then it was just like, I wanted to surf as much as possible. I wanted to, to spend that time back in the water because you feel like you've missed out a little bit. And then it was about what, what surfboard can I ride next? Like, can I get on a smaller board and can I surf a little bit better and try different things? And it just became one thing after the other. After achieving those goals, I kind of got into the habit of, of asking myself what's next after every time I would achieve something. And it's, it's something that you, you, know, you probably saw when we caught up the other day after, after the run. Like I, I, I consistently ask myself, what next? Because I love to have direction. I have, love to have a meaning. I love to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And if I don't have that, it's not to say that I'm just gonna <laughs> sit there and be stagnant. I just love yeah. to, to have something, put it in place and to, to go for it. So it was, in reflection, like the, that first surf was, it, I mean, there's, there's a reason I got it tattooed on me because it is so significant. And not only significant for me, but it was great to have Nick there. It was good to have my mum on the beach, like she was watching. Um, it was just a really, really nice moment that I can look back on with, with a lot of fondness. And I, I'd like to think that Scott was pretty proud of the fact that, that he'd got us both there and, um, I guess he looked at it as a bit of a, a box to tick as we, we kept moving forwards as well. And move forward you did. So when did the Molokai paddle, when was that inception? Um, <clears throat> that inception was, so on the theme of asking what's next, um, I got to the point probably two years after the attack where I was really surfing at a, a, a pretty high level and wanted to, to test myself in a little bit of a different way. And Nick, because <laughs> he's someone I spent a lot of time with, he's like, have you heard of um, the Oxfam 100K walk? And I was like, no, but I'll look into it. He's like, I'm, I'm looking at doing it this year and, and you need a team. And that was the first thing that I looked at that was a new challenge outside of the, the scope of, of what I'd done. And I, I liked the appeal of that because... I essentially like it kind of going back to that that feeling of 
of wanting to encounter failure. Like I wanted to get to a point where I wanted to give up, but then to ask yourself what you can find to keep moving through that, to keep pushing forwards. I wanted to find that, that point. And I thought doing the walk would be a good way of doing that. Um, it was definitely a challenge. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, my ITV blew up with 30Ks to go. So there's a lot of, a lot that you have to pull on to, to get through something like that. But after we finished that, that was the first time where I was like, maybe there are some other things that I can look at doing. And again, Nick came to me and he's like, have you heard of the Molokai tour one? <laughs> so <clears throat> Nick deserves a lot of credit yeah. and a lot of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, so he, he had described this paddle race between two islands in Hawaii. He said it's about 54 Ks. Um, and I was thinking to myself, yeah, 54 Ks is a, is a long way, but um, he was mentioning that you get these really big boards, like the big surf club boards, and you can like catch waves the whole way across. And I was like, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so we went and we got the boards and we started training for it. And that was in 2019, yeah. I think. Yes, must have been 2019 that we had that the idea for it. And we trained and we were going to train to do it in 2020. But that is when all the COVID stuff sort of started to happen. So couldn't do it then. Um, and then Nick had his first child. So he couldn't do the second one, which ended up getting cancelled anyway. Um, and it was kind of just this long line of cancellings, which meant that <clears throat> I was training for it, but couldn't get to the start line. And it got to the point I was really frustrated mm -hmm. um, in when it got canceled in 2022, because we, we decided that we wanted to make it a part of the film. So essentially to finish the film, we needed to do the paddle. <clears throat> and we talked to a few people, they're like, yeah, we can get you in the event, because usually there's like a ballot system that you have to go through. Um, people were like, yeah, we can get you in the event if it's for this and got canceled again. And I was kind of, I was really upset because I was like, man, this film's taking so long. There's a lot of people that are kind of waiting on this coming out. And I, I decided that I just couldn't wait any longer because it made me reflect on, on why I was doing this stuff in the first place. And all of the challenges that I'd set myself up until that point, because in, in that time from like the Oxfam, I'd run a marathon after that. Um, and uh, none of these had been events where you could win a prize for coming first. And yeah. I'd always enjoyed that because for me, it was more about the challenge than about actually winning or getting a medal or doing anything like that. And I was like, okay, well, if that's the case, then why do I actually need the event to compete in anyway? And I was like, at the end of the day, if the only person I'm competing against is myself and, and my mind, then I can just go over and do it. So that led us to organize everything that we needed to, to do and, and went over there July 2022 and, and did it. It's an incredible <clears throat> paddle. That's quite a famous paddle. Yes. Yeah, very spiritual paddle in Hawaiian islands. And... Um, Okay, so 54 kilometers. Yeah. You've had to learn to paddle, to balance, to compensate for loss of muscle in your left side. Um, it's, it's unfathomable for me to think about paddling for 54 kilometers. Um, 
Yeah, can you just tell us about the race? Because I love watching on the documentary and it was so parallel to ultra running that yeah. I would love to hear. How it, <laughs> it's, yeah. um, yeah, paddling's interesting. It's, I, I really, really enjoy, I thought I would enjoy it a lot. Um, I enjoyed the training because when I was paddling around here, like you'd, you'd come out at Minamara and then you'd like an orderly would be blowing and you'd paddle down to Kaima and you'd see parts of the coastline that you wouldn't yeah. usually see. It's really fun when the conditions are great, you can catch waves out there and it's mm. it's not like you're actually working that hard. I guess it's the equivalent to running downhill yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, or a gentle slope anyway. So I really enjoyed all the training. And when we were over in, we spent a week on Maui before we went and did the, the paddle. And I did one of these, one of my training paddles um, there, which is a, a really well-known paddle there. Um, which the name of it is escaping me at the moment, but it was basically downwind the whole way. So it was, it was actually, if I consider all the surfs that I've had, all the activities I've done in the ocean, that is the most fun I've had in the ocean was doing wow. that paddle. It was like a 15K paddle and it was just downwind the whole way. Like oh. it was so much fun. And there was turtles, like the water's beautiful and blue, like amazing experience. And I was like, if this is anything that the Molokai is going to be like, I'm going to have the time of my life. Difference with the Molokai, however, <laughs> is the wind doesn't and the swell doesn't go straight from island to island. So it goes through the channel as you're trying to go across it. So it kind of runs on like a 45 degree angle too. So you're always kind of fighting yeah. this, this um, at least the current and the swell and the wind trying to push you towards the left. So the thing about that experience is when there's so much water pushing across you it becomes really unstable really hard to paddle and it you just don't make the same progress as you would if you were doing a traditional downwinder and i hadn't really trained for that so i had spent a lot of time training well that winter i spent a lot of time training in the river because we had a lot of big swells so like i've got a video of me paddling in the river just one day when it's raining and it's windy and it's just like it looks miserable and that's how i did a lot of my training which was good for getting like kilometers in the arms, but it's not good for not, yeah. not good for what I needed on the actual paddle itself. So the first half was was good, but a challenge. Um, the longest training paddle I did was only about twenty five k, twenty five k, but in the river. Yeah. So the theory is with the river because you don't have any help that maybe that'll equate to maybe like a thirty five k paddle. Yeah. But, um, it's still not quite the same conversion. So by the time I got to about halfway, I was kind of breaking new ground with how long the paddle was. It's the longest time I'd spent on a board. It's really difficult to spend a lot of time on the board because you go between paddling on your knees, which takes a lot more energy and is more unstable, and then going on your stomach, which is just uncomfortable because it's just not, not comfortable mm. to be on your stomach for that mm. long. So you kind of reach this point where physically you can't really get comfortable. You're getting quite tired. And then for me, I began to get really dehydrated and I did not have the correct nutrition for, for that paddle at all. So that is something that, I mean, we talked about the things that you can learn from the different, different challenges you take on. I did not approach nutrition correctly when I did the Molokai, um, and that is summed up perfectly in the film when you see me eating a tuna sandwich at kilometre 27. Um, it's like you're eating a bag full of flour. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> it's, it's awful. Um, 
but at that point it was it was too late like i had already i couldn't keep up Deficit. with the amount of fluid mm. i couldn't get the appetite to eat i couldn't have any gels i couldn't have anything so it was really all i could have for the last bit was just plain water <laughs> that's all i could get in my stomach and wow that that there when when it was as bad as I felt in like that moment when I felt sick, I didn't want to keep going. That's the closest I've been to that moment you, I wanted to find. You wanted to find an Oxfam. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And that is the time where I've been like, okay, what is the what's the reality of me giving up here? Like how how much more do I have to give? And then at what stage do I say this is enough? Mm. And I was kind of like, well, if I can stay on top of just drinking enough water where I'm not going to be in any physical danger, it's going to suck, but I'll just use whatever strength I have with the fuel that I've got in my body to make it the rest of the way. And at that point, I was like, I need to forget about time. I need to forget about how long it's mm. going to take. And it's more just about taking those small paddles and just kind of going, I was just breaking it down into 15 minute intervals saying I'll paddle for 15 minutes, I'll stop for five, have some water, chill out for a bit, get a bit of energy, and then go for another 15 minutes. And just broke it down into like really small basic chunks. And it was really down to that like one arm in front of the other mentality. Just one one stroke at a time to get you to the end of that 15 minutes. And then it was like another goal that you kind of reach. But the last probably from the middle of the channel up until when I got to what's called the wall, um, which is where you reach the island, but you kind of have to go across and around into the bay. Once I got to the wall and kind of started going across it, that was the, the moment where I was like, okay, I've, from here, like I, there's, there's no failing. Like yeah. <laughs> the, the, yeah. I, I can't not finish from here. Whereas when you're in the middle, it's not like you can go back. <laughs> you can't like uh, it's, yeah. It's either you you completely give up and you get back on the boat, but you can't really do it in in small segments like that. So, I think achieving what I wanted as far as, which is funny because I never really looked at it as getting to that point because I think it was a mistake for me to get to that point because I didn't fuel myself properly. I don't think it was because of this physical limit that I had reached. I think it was just a lack of yep. a lack of preparation on on my behalf. So. Part of me still thinks I'm searching for that. <laughs> um, but at the same time, there is so much of me that wanted to get on the boat and so much of me that wanted to give yeah. up. But I just said to myself, we can keep going until I can't paddle any longer. Right. And I think part of that is stubbornness in personality. <laughs> and part of that is not wanting to let down all the other people that came along. But I know on the boat, so the captain, Jono, he was one of the most supportive people. You can hear him in the film. He's the one that's cheering out the whole time. Um, Tom, who was one of the guys filming, he said he, he saw him like when I was really struggling and Jono looked at me, not when I was on the boat, but like when I was just getting back in the water and Jono goes, I don't think he's going to make it. Wow. Lucky you didn't hear that. <laughs> no, not lucky. Exactly. You'll but, be fine. Um, but... Tom had seen enough of me where he was like, no, nah, he's, he's going to, he's going to at least try. Like yeah. he's, he's not going to give up until 
he no longer can paddle. So maybe that's a good thing that people believe in you in, in that sort of way. Um, Cause that was the first day I'd met Jono. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure if we did it again, he wouldn't be saying that. Yeah. Um, Tom knew what you were made so, of. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is, is probably a good thing because if people can look at you and know that that's how you're going to approach adversity, mm then that's the message that you're providing to yeah. the world, which I think is powerful. So powerful. Do you need a, do you need a break? No. I was, oh, I was just going to... Oh, I, <laughs> I'm so fascinated. So let's take us to the end of Molokai. So <clears> you hit the wall, you hit the, the, the place called the wall. Yep. You actually hit a physical, uh, mental wall. Yeah, there's so many walls yeah, that so I hit. So I, I, I hit the wall at halfway. I hit the, the, the thing that's called the wall. And yep. then I, I paddled around the corner to this section called China Walls. Right. Was, <laughs> um, Noemi was doing the French subtitles for Attacking Life last night because it's going to Paris Shark Week. In a Congratulations. Nights, cool, but, oh, yeah. um, she was just doing that section. She's like, you guys mentioned the wall a lot. <laughs> Like, yes, there was a lot of walls to be hit. So we get around the section into this final stretch, um, which is like the bay which leads you towards the finish line, which is amazing because you get out of the choppy water, um, you get out of the open ocean, you can see where you're supposed to be going. And I remember because when we were going across in the morning, we reached the, the entrance to this bay and Brad, who was my, my paddle guide, he goes, how long do you reckon it is back to the start? And I was like, like K and a half, he goes, it's three and a half from here. So oh, just remember that. <laughs> so I was like, by the time I got to that point, I was like, okay, I know it's three and a half from here, which is great. <laughs> but the problem with that last bit of the paddle is the wind, the way that it works, doesn't matter what direction it's going, the way the valleys are actually positioned there, the wind will always come around Coco Head and blow straight into your face that whole way back. So instead of having that help off your right shoulder, you're just going straight, straight. into it which I, it didn't bother me at the time because I wasn't trying to chase any sort of time, but it does slow you down a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> and sure. I, that was the bit that I dreaded the whole time was knowing that that was going to happen. But I think by the time I got there, I'd already been through the worst of it, that I was like, okay, this is just, this is the easy bit <laughs> for me. But just that, that last couple of Ks when you're looking at the finish line, you're kind of knowing that you've, you've been through like the, You've, you've got what you came for. <laughs> you've, you've been through that struggle. You've been able to push through that and you are going to make it at the finish line. And that, that's an amazing feeling. I think when, in everything that I've, I have done, there's always been that moment where you know you're gonna finish and there's that sort of like emotional feeling that you get where you're like, wow, I've actually, mm. I've done this. And for me, that comes more from the challenge, I think I'd feel that despite whether I was missing three quarters of my left quarter, I didn't have a left lat. Like I, I think that feeling of achievement is is something that I hope all people experience in some way in life. It doesn't have to be through through doing you know, a 54K paddle or doing an ultra or something like that, but just the feeling when you know all of this time and effort you've put into training and all of this stuff is now coming to yeah. its finale is such an amazing feeling. and. It always makes me emotional when I get to that point in, in whatever it is that I'm doing, that I'm like, wow, it's, it's amazing that all of this has been for this moment here. Because it's funny, like I, I get to the beach, I roll off the board, I'm exhausted. It's not like there's this huge crowd there who's cheering <laughs> you on. It's, it's just you and your perspective really at that point. 
and I think your perspective is is what you learn and what you take away from that. And if what you take away from that, which which for me is part the ability to push through struggle, um, but also part like what were the mistakes you made and what, what can you do better next time? Um, there's there's something pretty amazing about just touching that sand and being like, okay, this is this is another one that I've that I've yep. been able to overcome. Yeah. Um, and then you say what next? <laughs> and then you say what next? Not once in that documentary do you mention that you're missing three quarters of your quarter, and that's what affected your paddle, or that you left flat. Yeah. You don't. You don't say, "Oh, Brett's struggling because of this." Or it's just you get on with it and mm. you do it, and it's um it's really admirable <laughs> to watch that, to know that there's more going on behind the scenes than. Than just the normal struggle. Well, I think there always is. I I often have people tell me, like when we were making the film, we were talking to people about the story. They're like, you need to make more of the fact that you have these deficits, and um, it's something that I think everyone's got their own things that they're dealing with. Um, there's no such thing as we said earlier. There's no such thing as a perfect preparation for whatever it is that you want to do, as as you're finding out, um, as you found out in probably a lot of things that you've tried. Mm. Um, everyone has their own set of challenges that you're faced with and rather than focus on you know not necessarily the excuses but those things that you could easily look at and be like oh it's because of this it's because mm -hmm. of that like you you still have the option to to put your head down and to keep moving forward and however you show up at the start line however you finish whatever it is that you do as long as you can look at what led into that and say I did everything that I could in order to get there I did everything I could in order to try and finish then I think that's that's where the real value lies such an awesome message mate right what's next now you've skipped over the part that the doctor said you might not have a leg mm. yeah. you might not be able to walk your initial goal was to walk you skipped over the part that you just quietly slipped in you'd run a marathon and done a hundred kilometer walk um, I really want to delve into that. I realize the time is ticking. Um, I, we haven't even talked about running. Mm. So from someone who set a goal to be able to walk again, can you get onto how running's played a part of your life now? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I was introduced to running um, through a friend of mine, Bradley Drybra, who he's from Wollongong. Um, he's someone that lives with cystic fibrosis. And he set himself the goal to run a marathon a couple of years ago, which he did and he completed and he did it to raise money for CF. Um, an amazing, inspiring person. Mm -hmm. And he has his own podcast as well, who I went on and that was when I met him the first time. And in that podcast, we were talking about, um, we were talking about my story, talking about the Oxfam. And we were talking about what it means to undertake these physical challenges. And I know what he'd been through with um, with doing the marathon and I asked him I was like what do you think it is about taking on these physical challenges in particular ones like running that appeal to a lot of people who've had something something significant in their life especially something physical like what what is it about that and he said so I think there's something specifically about running where almost everyone like a vast majority of people can have the ability to wake up tomorrow and say I want to run a marathon it's something that's very accessible, it's very universal, almost anyone can do it. So the test itself is something that I think a lot of people can relate to. Obviously there are people that, that can't run, but um, but just that, that sheer accessibility of the task is something that appeals to a lot of people. 
And I remember when he said that, because I'd never really been much of a runner up until that point. Um, like I'd focused, I enjoyed walking. I did a little bit of running through that, but it was more just for, for the walking side of things. Um, and at that point I was starting to get into the paddling as well. And I didn't think I would ever find myself getting too much into the running because I was, as a surfer, you always have bad problems with your knees. And I was always like, I don't, I don't want to get into running because it'll ruin my knees and all these sorts of things here. But I remember talking to Bradley and just getting that perspective off him was, was pretty, pretty amazing where I was like, well, it's, it is definitely a, a good level as far yeah. as a sport goes. And there's no way to hide. Like when it comes to, to running, like it's just, just you and your own legs and how far that can get you. Um, and I think the other thing is it's so scalable as well because someone can run, like if someone wanted to run, wake up one day and run 5Ks, that might be the longest run they've done in their life. For someone, they can want to run 200Ks and it's the same challenge, yeah, but just different yeah. levels. Same with speed, same, like there's, there's a, it's very, mm. very scalable, which I, I really like the idea of. So it kind of, it got me to think about it a little bit more. And I remember there was one night where I just went for a run. I was like, I'm just gonna do like a 5K run, see how I feel. And it was because it was at a point, I think it was just after that first Molokai got canceled. And I was like, I'll go for a run, see how I feel. And I felt pretty good. And I messaged Bradley and I was like, hey, I just went for a 5K run. I feel pretty good. Message me tomorrow to make sure this isn't just some sort of runner's high or whatever. <laughs> but I think I want to run the marathon with you because he was planning on doing it again. And, um, <laughs> And he messaged me the next day and he said, what do you reckon? And I was like, I'm in. So oh, wow. I was like, uh, the reason I did that because I wanted to, I, I actually enjoyed that first run that I had, but I wanted to to try, like just the way that he spoke about running as, as this sport was something that, that appealed to me like that. And I wanted to do it with him as well because he was someone that was pretty influential in, in just getting me to look at running a little bit differently. So. I did the first marathon with him, which I, I enjoyed. It was, it was a challenge. Um, and it was like the perfect example of doing it with him was he, he broke down at sort of like kilometer 32, 35-ish. Um, and we just walked the rest together. So it wasn't about time. It wasn't about pace. It was just about getting him through this. And to see someone with his condition be, be able to push through that and persevere through it is, is amazing. Like, again, like I've seen some inspiring things in my life and to see what he does out there on on the road is is incredible absolutely but the problem after that i finished running i did that and i was like i don't want to run again oh right because <laughs> i i kind of got a little bit bored of the, the training like i when i was doing my training i would do three runs from my house so i'd either run into kayama out to swamp road or over to shell harbor and back just did the same run over and over and over again and i, I got kind of sick of it so I didn't run for probably a good 12 months after that. Um, and then I got back into it so I could run with Naomi, my wife. And that's where I started trying to look for a few different challenges. And um, actually, the <laughs> we talked about it earlier, but I think it's, it's worth talking about. I was doing a little piece on the journal section of my website where I was interviewing people and I'd heard of um, this guy who'd run Coast to Cozy. And I found out about what it was. Um, and I noticed that it was someone that I'd seen pop up a few times in my Instagram feed. It was Zach O'Neill. And yeah, I, legend. I messaged him just to be like, hey, can I ask you a few questions about the run? Um, because he had the video on it as well. And I watched the video. And 
I just messaged him about a few things and I was really inspired just with the way that he looked at running. Um, he started, like, you know, he's only been running for a couple of years and has done some amazing, incredible things. And I was like, okay, well, it's, it's not that it's something that I can't do, but I'd like to give it a go. So I messaged him and I was like, I'm thinking of doing a 50K somewhere. I was like, do you have any recommendations? And he goes, oh, Elephant Trail. And I was like, cool. Went and signed up, messaged him back. I was like, hey, just letting you know I've signed up. He goes, oh, I should have told you. It's got heaps of hills. <laughs> and I was like, all right. <laughs> so so that, was, that was setting that goal. And then I met you and told you about doing that. And you were very kind to, to help me out with, um, with some training advice and some nutrition advice, which was which was amazing. But the main goal for doing the 50K was to improve on the mistakes that I'd made when doing the Molokai. So the nutrition was the biggest one. Mm. And I, I said that I just want to try and work that out over a distance that I see, like I've done the 42, so doing a 50 is a little bit more, maybe with some elevation will <laughs> make it a lot more challenging. But I, um, I, I really the main focus was to work on, on nutrition. But when I got into the training, there's something I, as much as I didn't like the training for the marathon, I loved about training for the trail. Just being able to go out and do different trails and find different places and go new places is, is something that kind of set this training apart from the one I'd done in the past. And I, I really, really, really enjoyed the whole process of, of training for it. And for me, it was, it was, a lot about doing that but then I was learning heaps about the nutrition so I tried so many different things when it came to nutrition right. like different products different yep. gels gummies caffeine no caffeine drinks yep. like everything I, I tried to figure out what what would essentially work for me and I think I've got it nailed now which is good so can you um, share what you use so I use a combination of one okay I, the biggest thing I, I learned which was which I, in hindsight ended up being the problem in the paddle that tipped me over the edge caffeinated gels that does not work for me this the taste of it is awful i can't do it it's exactly the same mate. yeah yep. and that was the first thing i i learned caffeine gels they're out um i tried a bunch of different gels and the goo lemon sublime ones are the best ones for me i'm a i'd like lemon and lime flavored anything and that one just seemed to sit in my stomach the easiest um, i tried a few different ones which were which were okay but that one just seemed to be the the easiest and it's kind of the easiest to find as well um the chews um there's these precision field chews which are kind of like a little turkish delight type of nice. setup which is which is nice and again lemon flavored um they also have a mint flavored one if, if you have a, a different taste that you need and then um the tailwind endurance um as as the drink so just between those three things without having to go to any solid food they they were good for for my entire training sort of i worked that out maybe two-thirds of the way through and then for the last third of my training i just trained only with that good for you man for working out some people even veteran ultra runners haven't worked out the nutrition so yeah. your approach your pragmatic approach to everything you do has worked out well before we go on to elephant trail i have to ask you about the impact of your training with your leg i mean so many of us get minor injuries and compensate with our other leg and end up wrecking that so what challenges do you have to face like with your gait 
and and training up for marathon distance let alone 50k <laughs> of huge mountains yeah so the there's obviously quite like despite the fact that we were able to transplant that muscle and that that muscle works there's still a large deficit in strength and how the muscles actually work um which which has its own challenges um in how i compensate i know i definitely put a lot more through my right leg um, but i try my very very best to like and i have for a long time to keep that as strong and conditioned as possible because it is always going to take on a lot yeah. of the um, a lot of the the load so with my left leg it never has given me any issues in any of the challenges that i've done um but the problem with that is because everything's going through the right leg so with the 100k right itb not an issue in the left because i don't have a left itb um, extraordinary yeah. <laughs> um in the marathon i had a little bit of cramping but it was in the right leg um with all of these things like i think it is more about the ability to condition the right leg as it is to to kind of even things out but I'm, I'm always impressed with how well the left leg goes like the fact that it can sustain running over that amount of time yeah. is is something that amazes me the only thing that ever really gets me on the left is that my hip can get pretty tight from time to time especially if i'm running downhill um, and i think that's just the ability to to control the leg because i i would have to control it more from my hip than the quad because I can't make it rigid so much from just tensing the quad. Gotcha. So, so you have to consciously do that as yeah. you're... Yeah. So that that's kind of how the deficit works. Mm. Um, over a significant amount of time, I might get a little bit more pain in my left hip, like in the actual joint, Yeah. Um, which has more been something in the last six months probably than, than anything before. But... I think there will be natural issues that I'll encounter with that leg at some stage, mm. um, but I'm making the most of it at the moment. Oh, you are. <laughs> Unbelievably. So elephant trail race, you trained really well. You enjoyed the training on the trails more than the road. And then how did the race pan out for you? Um, overall, great. I, um, <clears throat> I set myself two goals. Uh, one of them was a must and the other one was conditional. The must was to stick to the, the nutrition plan and to do as well as I could in regards to that. That was the first priority. Love that that was the main, the main goal is nutrition. That's yeah. So good goal. That, and the second one was, was more of a time-based goal where I went up um, after your recommendation to go and do like a test lap of, of the actual trail to figure it out and see how steep it is, which I'm very, very, very glad I did because um, I actually, I kept notes every single week I wrote down like what I did for each session and certain things. And when I went and did the, the test loop of the trail, the first thing I wrote is you will not be running this whole thing. <laughs> so knowing how steep some of the hills are really helped me with the rest of my training. Um, so the second goal was a time goal based on the fact that when I went and did that test loop, I think I did it in like three hours, 47 or something like that. And that was with a few wrong turns. Um, a little bit of getting lost and, and a little bit of walking as well. And I was like, if things go well after the first lap and I'm on track, I was like, I'll see if I can try and do a sub seven for the, for the whole course. And I was like, that's still pretty ambitious based off the fact that, you know, the, the 347 was 
one lap on yeah. on my test. So I was like, I'll set that and just see see how I'm feeling and and if if it's looking like it and I'm feeling good and it's not going to jeopardize the nutrition, then I'll I'll have that as a backup one. So the first lap was like a breeze, um, like far far too easy for what it should have been. Wow, especially considering what I how I felt after doing the first test loop. But I mean, I was I was more conditioned. I was sort of I started off pretty conservatively i was like in the group that was um kind of the bulk of the people i guess you have the front runners which will run off out out in front um but i was in that group for a while and then as soon as i got to that first set of little hills they all dropped back and then i was kind of just by myself for a while because i was i knew what to expect with the hills coming up that i was like i know this first hill i can get over with a decent amount of pace but when the next ones come i was like i know exactly how long they go for what they were so i actually wrote down on my phone each stage so i was like kilometer zero to three it's downhill and then i have these uphills here and i knew exactly so where the cool. things were so clever yeah so right. i <clears throat> i was kind of working through that first lap got to the top sweet felt really good came down the other side um made up a ton of time along the dry riverbed which was which was fun i think just being a surfer and having the ability to jump across rocks is something that helped me there because a lot of people were real cautious there most people hate that section. yes it was my favorite <laughs> so um i got through that and then actually for like the last five k's of that first lap um finally found someone that was running at like a similar pace um, it was just this girl we ran the last like five k's together chatting and like the quickest 5k's ever it just went like a breeze and um got to the end of that first lap felt great needed i timed it perfectly with all the fluid i had so like i finished the last bit of water as i was going up that final little hill so refilled when i got back um i had the option to have some solid food i was like i'll have a vegemite sandwich some chips and things like that there if i need them but I didn't feel like I needed it because I was real consistent, real strong right. with, mm. with the other food that I had, which I suppose speaks to sticking to that plan. Um, set out on the second lap, was felt, felt good for the first, like basically right up until we get to the middle of going up the steepest bits towards the top of Mount Cancross. Because as you know, there's like three steep Steps. sections yeah. and they all have a small downhill in between them. And it was on the, I got up the first one, small downhill, felt a little cramp come on. And I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. Went up the second uphill. And then when I was going down the next downhill, it like both quads just fully locked up. And I was like, that's not a great sign. <laughs> but I was like, maybe it's just like a, a small temporary thing. Maybe I'll just be able to, to walk for a little bit and take it pretty slow. Um, I had some salt tablets. So I was like, I'll, I'll see if I can get through that. And I had that, as soon as I started going back up the hill, felt a little bit better. Um, but by the time I got to the top, I was like, okay, this is something I'm probably gonna have to manage the rest of the way. Yeah. But as you know, when you get to the top, it's just downhill for, for ages, right, right until you get to the end of the riverbed. So I was started, started going downhill and it was not fully cramping, but it was really sore. Like it was just really tight. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take it easy because I don't want to push it 
and ruin this and then struggle by the time I get to the bottom because I know that long uphill after that is is probably the, the real killer. So I was just trying to stay consistent with making sure I was having water, fluid, salt tablets, which would give me a little bit of alleviation. Um, the gel that I had actually was probably what helped me the most because it kind of got rid of it for about 30 minutes. Um, so I actually wish I carried one or two more gels with me um, on that second lap, but I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So we get, I get to the bottom of the hill. I haven't seen anyone for ages either. Yeah. Like I was basically just running by myself, my, myself for that second lap. And get, it, get through the riverbed, felt really good through there. And I think part of it's just like being in a place where you know you're happy, that the physical stuff tends to get pushed yeah. to the side. And by the time I got to the end of the riverbed, I was like, okay, this is good. I'll, um, like I should be able to make it most of the way back. And as soon as I got out of the riverbed, go up a small hill, and then there's like another aid station just after that. And I got through that, and there was a guy that was just like in all sorts. And I was like, oh, at least I feel better than this guy. <laughs> <clears throat> and then I topped up a little bit of water there, and then I kept going, and then they really set in there, like, but going uphill this time. Yeah. And I started walking a little bit, and then the guy who was in all sorts passes oh. me. And I was like, oh. <laughs> but he, he was actually good. He was like, you're right. And I was like, oh, I got a couple of cramps. And he was like, oh, do you need anything? I was like, I'll be able to manage it to the end because I don't think he had anything that yeah. would have been able, been able to help me. He's like, I got salt tablets. I was like, that's what I've been having anyway. So I was having one like every kilometer basically from there until the end, just trying, trying anything. Like I think part of it was probably just mentally being able to take something. But as bad as those cramps were, like this. It, they weren't really fully cramping back up. Mm -hmm. It was just really tight and, and really painful and nothing that you can't really run through. It's just I was a lot slower. Right. Um, but I forgot to say, I got through the first lap in three hours, five minutes. Oh. So at that point, I was like, even if anything goes wrong in the second lap, which you did. Yeah, which yeah. <laughs> you did. I think it was three hours, five or three hours, 15. Either way, it was. I was like, if anything goes wrong, then like it'll, it'll be sweet. I'll, yeah. I'll have plenty of time up my sleeve. So I was like, okay, I can try and go for that that sub seven. But then when I started getting those cramps, I was like, okay, let's go back to the nutrition side of things. What can I do here to try and yeah. try and help what I'm going through? And that's where I was like, I'll try the salt tablets. I'll try and just stay hydrated. But as you said to me, sometimes that won't even won't even fix that. So it's more just about kind of getting through that that little pain barrier and and pushing through. So. It was, there was that long uphill afterwards and then there's that real steep downhill. And that was, that was probably the worst of, of that because you can't not engage your quads when yeah, you're going downhill, going down hill, especially yeah. when it's that steep. And that had some loose gravel on it as well. So you kind of want to take it pretty easy. You don't want to let yourself go. But then after that, it's just that last bit of those little hills. And at that point I was like, okay, it's the same, same thing. Like I'm, I know I'm going to make it. It's just a matter of getting over these last couple of hills. But um, despite the cramps, stuck to the nutrition plan, um, was really happy with how I felt. Like I kind of set the cramps aside. I'm, I'm not sure if that's something that could have been saved by nutrition. Um, but I think I was really, really happy with, with my approach to how I went about pacing things. And to finish it in six hours, 47 or something like that, or 43, um, I was 
super stoked. Like uh, that that exceeded my own expectations by by a long way. And I think part of that, like when you are in that race environment, there's a bit of the effort gets reduced because the adrenaline kind of fills in that gap there. So you, you kind of make up a bit of extra time that way. But um, it's not the most difficult thing that I've done, but it is the most enjoyable challenge wow. that I've done. Wow, that's really nice to hear. Yeah. It's an exceptional time too. When I met you afterwards, I, I didn't expect you to do anywhere near that time. Like it's really quality on that course for the first well, I guess Oxfam was an ultra distance, but first run, solo run. It's just, it's mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> so then you finish. Yeah. To the what's next, how long till the what's next question came um, up? Well, I'd, I'd already planned to do the Sydney Marathon. Oh, um, with Naomi. With, yeah, Sorry, so, which, is, which is in five, six weeks time. So that is automatically what's next. Um, it's been her biggest yep. goal to want to do that for, for a very long time. So I'm there to support her through that and to, to help her achieve that, that dream, which I think will be amazing for her. Oh, so good. Has she, um, what's she run before? She's run a half. A half, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so. And you'll run with her? I'll run with her, yeah. 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 So I, I'll just carry all the supplies she needs, um, give her all the encouragement she wants. <laughs> so that, that's, that's next and then as far as next time, I actually put something on Instagram the other day, just um, getting some ideas off people and seeing if anyone wanted to, to join me. And there's a lot of people that that have ideas of of what what should be done. Like triathlon was thrown out there, or um, the Ironman was thrown out there. Um, there was the Cosy Miler was thrown out there. Um, someone said the Unreasonable East, which is going another level. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I I would love to do another, another trail, maybe like a 100k. Wow! Um, I just want to find sort of the right one. I I'm not sure if I want to do one that is one of the popular ones, like the UTA or something like that, because something I, I one of the things I really enjoyed about Elephant Trail is I think there was like 60 or 70 people that did the 50k. It's not crowded out there. It's you you get some time and some space to yourself. And I've spoken to people who've done like the the Katoomba, like the, the Blue Mountains ones, and they say you just, like, you can't run parts of it just because you're stuck behind people. So I, I think I would like to find one that's maybe a, a slightly lesser known one and give that a crack and, and see how we go. But I still, part of me wants to go back and do the Oxfam course, but try and do it better. Right. Because I, I think as much merit as there is in asking what's next, I still think there's a lot of, a lot of value to be gained in looking back at your past experiences mm. and saying, can I improve on that? Um, which there's also part of me that looks at the Molokai in that way, um, but I, it might take a bit more convincing <laughs> to get over there. Uh, it was on last week. and Oh, was it on last yeah, week? There was, a, there was a guy that I was kind of giving a bit of advice who finished 15th or something like that and did great. Um, and it was, it was amazing seeing with the whole event set up there and all the people at the finish line. This is stuff that yeah. I missed out on, which I didn't need, but I think it adds to the spiritual experience, especially of that event there. Right. Um, so I, I'm, mm. I'm still toying with the idea of finding a good 100K or maybe looking back at one of those previous things and, and aiming for that, but currently undecided, yeah. um, unless you have any ideas. I've got lots of, I can help you <laughs> with that. <laughs> one of the things that I, I guess, I wanted to wrap up with is 
the way that you have reinvented yourself, you talked about that identity before as Brett the surfer who was going for the pro tour and the way that now you're talking about running 100k trail ultra marathons and paddles from island to island and doing speaking um, and bringing your story to benefit others like how do you how do you as you were grapple with letting go of an old identity and reinventing yourself without getting sucked back into the wanting to be the surfer that you were and join the tour and go back to the old identity yeah it's, it's something I haven't really considered, which is probably what makes it such a, a great question. It's, it's something I think the, I don't necessarily look at the old identity as being a bad thing or, or necessarily being something that I don't want, but it's something that I know is different to what I want now. I couldn't get what I want out of life now if I was still doing those things. And I think that's probably the best way to explain why why I, I am doing the things that I'm doing now and there isn't that allure to go back to the person that I was before. Because like I, I arrived there, like I, I still surf now as I did before and I probably could do those things. But again, I kind of weigh it up with with what I have to give back. and. Could I continue giving back to the world if I go and become a surfer? I'm sure people would be inspired by that. But I still think there's more value in, in what I'm doing now, not only just through the speaking, but it's actions as much as words. And that's where I see mm-hmm. these challenges, they are for me, but I think it's also proof for a lot of people that they see the words that I share in like my speaking and presentations, podcasts and things like that. You see them in action. You see them actually be resolved in a real-life scenario because... A lot of the things we hear are like concepts a lot of the time. So to see them actually play out, I think holds a lot of value, which, which is what, again, going back to that word pride, I think that's something that you can take pride in is knowing that you actually live by the words that you speak. That is so inspiring for me, mate, to hear you <laughs> say that because we talk about, we've talked about death and talk about looking back at the end of your life and saying, what to use your word, where did I provide the most value? And, and now you're finding it in the way that you're going. Like, it's for me, it, again, it's just so inspiring to, to take that shift from me to what, you know, my life and me and what can I do to what will benefit. And not, not everyone, not thousands, as you said, but the few who, like, like the lady had the stroke, who's, yeah. who's out there now doing it because someone real has shown her that it's possible unfortunately we are going to have to say goodbye (laughs) mate but I I just is there anything else before we get to how people can find you and stuff is there anything else you wanted to share that's still unsaid I don't know if it's unsaid but I I guess that ultimate the idea of my biggest regret is that I would have a regret like when, when I finish life. And, and I would hope that a lot of people can see the way in which not just I approach life, but a lot of people approach life with just looking at the things that we can possibly do and, and chasing them. Like uh, you won't know unless you actually make that move and, and try. And I think if there's one thing that I would love for people to do, it's like it doesn't have to be on an enormous scale, but to do something for yourself that you can be proud of. And I, like yeah. I, I think 
it's great that you mentioned that almost stigma behind the word pride because I think I want to try and normalize it because I think people should be proud of what they what they do and what they achieve in life. It's, it's amazing how many incredible people are out there and I might be someone who's been attacked by a shark. Everyone has their own story. We're not all different. Like we're all just humans who are going yeah. through life and I think there are so many inspiring people to look towards mm. for inspiration um, that, that really inspire me and I, I hope other people can, can look around and see the importance of making the most of the, the opportunity that we do have. So good, mate. Thank you for for bringing that to the fore today and showing us not only how to, but like why we should do that as well and, and the impact has on others. So how do people find you to book you for speaking or to learn more about you? Um, I made it pretty easy, actually. I have a website now, which is good. It's just brettcanellan.com. Um, two N's, two L's, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. I had to think about that and it's my <laughs> Yeah, uh, everything's on there. My email um, links to all my speaking stuff's on there. Um, if anyone wants to watch Attacking Life, it's available on Stan. Um, you can get a free subscription, so that's it's always good for people who don't want to shell out for the, the monthly fee. But um, yeah, look, I, I always encourage people to, to reach out if they do have any, any questions or if, they are, um, if they're looking to do something themselves and, and need that bit of, bit of confidence. There's, you can get that from a lot of different people, but... Um, I, I love hearing from people and, and knowing that, you know, hearing my story or what I've been through has, has helped them take that next step or take that first step. So um, it's easy to, to get in touch with me. There's, there's not too many barriers these days, which is good. Good on you, mate. That's so generous of you. Definitely go and watch Attacking Life. You will watch it more than once. And um, <laughs> check out, I've been reading Brett's blog as well on the website. It's very well written. He's a beautiful writer as well as speaker. Um, and I guess everything he puts his mind to, he absolutely, absolutely excels at. So thanks, mate. Thanks a million. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Mindset for Runners podcast. I hope you got something practical and useful out of this podcast or something inspiring to help you get out for your next run. If you have a question about Mindset for Runners or athletes in general, please email me at robmason.run at gmail.com and I'll answer your question on an upcoming podcast. If there's anybody you know who could benefit from the information I share in this podcast, please share it with them. See you next time.